This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Time now to have Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun join us. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, let's start with something a little different this morning. Um, let's start with something, some good news, because I love to see that Kim Bolin was honored last night and so deserving of this. Yes. Do you say Lieutenant Governor or Lieutenant Governors? I say Lieutenant Governor because I've been told that that's the proper way to say it. <laughs> we had a <laughs> Lieutenant Governor a few years ago who said that he once went to a class of students and explained that we say Lieutenant Governor because of our British heritage, which is we say Lieutenant, not Lieutenant. That's right. And he said he then got a lovely letter from the students, which they wrote themselves addressed to Dear Left-Handed Governor. So so we try. We do. It's an uphill battle some days, but I get it. Yes. Lieutenant Governor. I was at Government House last night. Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin was honoring Kim Bolin, the incredible Kim Bolin. So this was an occasion to mark the remarkable success of something that Janet Austin set in motion, which is a, a fund, a scholarship to, or a fellowship, to provide funding to British Columbia-based reporters to do uh, the kind of coverage that a lot of news organizations don't have the money to pay for anymore. So travel expenses, research expenses, uh, research time. And the second winner of the fund was Bolin, who went off and produced the series that's been running in the sun Uh, the last few weeks. Uh, It's on the Sun website. It's not paywall. That's part of the terms. And it is on lethal exports. It's amazing. You know, I I mean, there's a whole bunch of things to say about this. But the reason the stories are so significant, apart from the fact that they even got done, British Columbians have long treated the drug trade as if we're just the victims. We are the recipients of an international drug trade that cartels, uh, all sorts of people flood British Columbia with drugs and it's just terrible and that's why we have so many addicts and all that. This series was a real eye-opener. Even Bolin says, who knew a lot, she says the incredible thing she discovered is that we're actually exporters. We're delivering drugs from here to other places and ruining them. So Vietnam, Australia, Fiji, Bolin went to all these places, but it's incredible. She says that, you know, some of the biggest drug kingpins in the trans-Pacific drug trade are people who earned their trade here in British Columbia. You know, the story, the the thing that got me that she wrote about, too, was the fact that we talk about all the the gang warfare here on the streets. That's at the low level, that at the higher levels, these gangs are cooperating and working with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We're the collateral damage, but most of these people operate in foreign countries beyond the reach of our authorities here. (laughs) Bolin, by the way, as you know, Simi, has a fabulous sense of humor. And she said, you know what? 
If it wasn't illegal, this would be a great British Columbia business story. You know, we've started something up here. We had a startup, drug exporting, and now it's all over the Western, uh, all over the Pacific, right? So, but that's how big it is. And she said, it's amazing. She was surprised at how many of the major operators in this trans-Pacific drug trade, as I said, started out in British Columbia and survived the gang wars here, didn't get killed, and are now major players. And, and not surprisingly, these other countries are going, what are you British Columbians doing to stop this trade? And of course, the focus is on the port of Vancouver. Uh, that's interesting too. This whole conversation around the need for port police and the need to police and inspect the containers leaving our port has been jump-started by this series. Uh, I think we had, uh, you know, leaders, Delta in particular, uh, mayor and a police chief there both said they've been talking about this for a while, but the talk on this took off with the publishing of Boland's story. So amazing work. Um, you know, Simi, I've been at the paper for 50 years, as you know, and Bolin is one of the most incredible people that ever worked. I think she's one of the most incredible reporters yes, that ever worked in so British true. Columbia. Yeah, people, you, you know, people, people think, oh well, you know, you write critically about politics, you must get a lot of feedback and everything. Politicians are incredibly thick-skinned; they are used to this sort of criticism. I, I mean, I had a cabinet minister once tell me I'd written a critical piece about him, and he said, "Pa, that's nothing." He said, "I get worse abuse standing in the checkout line at my local <laughs> supermarket." You know, and this is true. Like they're so used to it. Kim writes about people that aren't used to being criticized publicly or even reported on publicly. And who and phone her Kim, and tell her. Yeah, Kim gets threatened by people who are actually know how to carry out threats, right? So, Nashi's amazing. Um, so true. I, I'm delighted. Simi, and I said it to the Lieutenant Governor last night. I said, you know, not to take anything away from your award, but there are awards that go to people and honor the recipient. This is one of those cases, Simi, where the recipient honors the reward. It was a great choice, and I told a couple of members of the judging panel last night uh, that Good. you you just made a terrific choice giving this to Sim to Kim. Uh, the awards for this year open. There's going to be two of them: one for experienced journalists, one for starting out journalists. And again, uh, if any of the listeners out there are journalists, uh, you should think about applying for this because these resources are critically important. And this is the award that Kim Boland won. Very true. And also, I do recommend that people go to the Vancouver Sun's website and check out those stories. As Vaughn mentioned, they are not paywalled because of the award that helped her do the um, do the work for that. So check that out. Talking politics now, because it sounds like Vaughn, the premier, was uh, back at work yesterday. Yeah, the Premier's uh, resumed his pre-election schedule. We're already in the middle of a campaign, in case no one's noticed. And you may remember that in the middle of the Selena Robinson imbroglio on Monday, the Premier cancelled a news conference, which was on rental housing. That is back on this morning at 9 a.m. David Eby is in Coquitlam with the CEO of the BC Rental Housing Fund. So you may remember that a little over a year ago, back in January of last year, EB gave uh, half a billion dollars in a grant 
from the budget surplus to a new fund. And the fund was set up to identify rental housing buildings in British Columbia that were on the market and in danger of being uh, renoviction centered or torn down and replaced. And the money was intended to allow nonprofits to buy those buildings and maintain them on the market as rental housing, affordable rental housing. So that was a whole idea. Maybe, as I said, announced it in January of last year. Uh, he oversold uh, how quickly this could be done back in January of last year. He said this would be, they'd be buying buildings in March of last year. Well, here we are today. These are actually the first purchases. And Simi, because the announcement is in Coquitlam with the mayor of Coquitlam, I assume that the first projects they're buying are in Coquitlam. Okay, so it's been, I, I seem to remember when this announcement happened, it was also very short on details at the time, too. Yeah, there was a, it was very short on details. You may remember, they had this giant provincial budget surplus of $6 billion. And the way the accounting rules in government work, they have to get the money out of the door and into somebody else's hands, uh, or it doesn't get counted by the Auditor General as actual spending that occurred last year. So it was a rush job. Uh, they set up very quickly with some arm's length uh, housing nonprofits, indigenous organizations, a foundation to receive this money. And then the foundation was going to hire a CEO and they were going to uh, vet good projects, line them up with nonprofits, and uh, try to get those underway. So that was the concept. Um, as I said, the premier kind of oversold how quickly that could be done. It is, even though it isn't government, it's an awful lot like government and it's taken a long time. Now, you know, a couple of other things happened. The other big uh, thing that the premier couldn't deliver on was he said, this is one time money. This foundation is going to have the money. This fund is going to have half a billion dollars. And from then on, there's no taxpayer involvement. Well, people in the real estate industry pointed out, look, the kind of rental buildings that go on the market out there and that are in danger of being torn down and replaced or subject of renovations, they need a lot of work. They need a lot of maintenance and upkeep. The owner probably hasn't been keeping them up because they're low rent. The rent rates are low, right? So you're not going to be able to get these nonprofits to take on these buildings and maintain the upkeep and do all the repairs, they need cash flow. So the province is going to be adding, throwing in more millions of dollars. I think it's about a million dollars per 400 units for maintenance and upkeep to keep these things operating. Uh, Simi, they said that the $5, $500 million could be leveraged into the purchase of, they guesstimated, 3000 units. So we'll find out today how many units they've actually been able to purchase and put out there uh, with the public's half a billion dollars. 
And we'll also see how quickly these are actually going to be up and running and available to people on an affordable rental basis. I mean, I would say they they need to get this in the next six months, right? Because how many yeah. times have we heard from Premier David Eby, like, judge yeah. me on what I do for the election? Well, needs to be done then by October. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. I see a couple of stories in today's news of people saying they are incredibly frustrated by the government's uh, Find a Family Doctor website that they've been going that, on yeah. to help connect. You know, our government uh, put a huge amount of money into uh, paying family doctors more, putting them on a registration site, getting them to be available. And then if you don't have a family doctor, you go on there and you find a family doctor. And the government claims they've added, what, something like six or 700 more family doctors in BC. But people are finding, as so often happens with major government announcements that it's a heck of a lot harder to to find a family doctor than the government suggests that it would be. And I think that's probably one of the stories, Simi, we're going to be covering this year is the gap between delivery of what David E.B. promised and what's actually happened. I think that is very true. Avon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun.